States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. By seeking weapons of mass destruction, these regimes pose a grave and growing danger. But the dangers are obvious. 30 miles to the east in that direction lies Syria. 100 miles to the south down the coast is the border with Israel. The possibility exists that Syria and Israel could find themselves confronting each other here in the chaos of the Lebanon. Well, Europe's role in the Middle East since the secret Sykes-Picot agreement, which effectively divided up the Middle East peoples under our rule without asking them, I don't see any reason why there is or should be a role for Europe um, or for America for the same reasons. So, um, hello everyone and welcome to Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Piotr Schokus and today I'm joined by none other than Eugene Rogan himself. He is the author of two exceptionally well-received books on the history of the Middle East. He's a fellow of the British Academy and teaches a very popular tutorial on the history of the modern Middle East. And that's exactly what we are going to discuss today. So welcome, Eugene. Thank you for showing up. Piotr, a pleasure. I'm glad, I'm glad. So my, my first question is, so when the West discusses the Middle East, its politics and its society, it is often done using very essentialist terms. And equally, political disagreements are often portrayed in almost civilizational terms. So, for example, Iran versus Saudi Arabia is portrayed as Shia versus Sunni. America versus Iran is East versus West. And Israel versus Palestinians is Jews versus Arabs. But we don't portray Brexit as being the latest salvo in a centuries-long Anglo-French cross-channel conflict, and nor do we see Franco-German disagreements from the perspective of continental great power competition here in Europe. My first question to you, and it is a big one, is why then is history given such a privileged position when we discuss the Middle East? The, the, the question and the prelude are asking for slightly different things. I mean, to deal with your question first off, you know, history is privileged in the way it is precisely because our best guide to the future is the experience of the past. If one is trying to make sense of complex politics with lots of unforeseen and unforeseeables, then your best guide is to look back to what peoples or countries or governments have done in the past under certain circumstances and then try and extrapolate from there. As historians, that meant that that's always meant that what we do isn't confined to just knowing about the past. It's not useful knowledge so that in cocktail parties you can drop, you know, great stories about. 19th century Ottoman Syria. By the way, not a great strategy for cocktail conversations. <laughs> I'm not I, surprised. I, I find that I lose a lot of people uh, in cocktails in just that way. Uh, no, it's because what we've learned from the past will help guide us to understand what might happen in the future. No promises there, but it is our best yardstick. And, and no, you know, quantitative social science has given us a better yardstick uh, in, in helping to uh, come to terms with the future. But the first part of your question was really getting at why it is we approach complex societies through stereotypes and generalizations. I think two things are at work there. I mean, at one level, we do this with all societies. I don't think the Middle East is unique in being discussed in these generalized terms. If you were to look at public discourse on complex societies like India or China or Russia, I think you'll find that the same kind of gross generalization goes on. Generalizations and stereotypes give us an easy handle to discuss things that we don't know fully well. And let's be honest, 
you know, you and I may focus a lot of our attention on the Middle East, but there are whole parts of the world in which we have but a sketchy knowledge. And we'll grab onto such stereotypes and handles as a way to talk meaningfully about them or understand what's going on there. So they play that important you know, role in helping us make sense of the complex. But I think the other side of it is it allows us a way of exculpating ourselves as Europeans or Americans for the role that we might have played in distorting political life or freedoms in the Middle East and North Africa. You know, I don't think there are any innocent powers. Power is, in its nature, something which soils your hands and involves you in immorality. Uh, we're, we're quite conscious of this today in our bid to try and decolonize our thinking, to break with the imperial past, to come to an honest reckoning with slavery to deal with the legacies of the past and shaping race today. You know, we're very awake to these concerns, to these issues that we have through our exercise of power, abused power. And Europe did it when it was a European imperial age. The Americans and the Soviets did it when it was the Cold War. And those abuses of power have long lasting effects. So if we can, rather than say, we screwed up, we, we set in motion unhealthy politics, we undermined the nationalists in their bid to try and claim self-determination, and in so doing, we have given rise to unhealthy politics, we can kind of pass the blame on to the Middle Eastern people themselves. So it's not that we conspired against Nasser in Egypt, it's that Egypt has always been rather conspiratorial in the way it talks about politics. You know, sometimes where there's smoke, there is fire. And if Egypt has been in its political discourse a little conspiracy heavy, well, don't let us forget the role that a collusion between Britain, France, and Israel led to a war against Egypt in 1956 that has got to be the mother of all conspiracies. So maybe these generalized ways of talking about the deep history of divisions or of inadequate political freedoms are really a reflection on us trying to pass the blame for what doesn't work in the Middle East onto the Middle Eastern people themselves and not see it as a reflection of how we in history have abused our power to distort these societies and their politics. Is, is, but you have also then written two books. Like One is like they're called The Arabs, which is like the history of the Middle East in like a broad sense. The other one is The Ottomans, which is the history of the late, I think, Ottoman Empire. Or is it the whole Ottoman Empire? You know, it's the, the fall of the Ottomans is really just oh, a history of the First World War in the Middle East. And then, because now you're working on a book on Syria, if I'm allowed to say that. Absolutely. Uh, okay, cool. Fantastic. <laughs> and is that and then... That's publicity. Do, do you have, like, specific purposes with these books in mind in order to, like, give a more nuanced perspective on the Middle East? Or is it also just driven by curiosity where you think, okay, there hasn't been something written about this. This is a chance for me to add some nuance or shed some light on something because especially the one you're writing now is uh, the beginning of like the sectarian conflict i could almost say in in syria like it's it, that's a bit of a blunt way of phrasing it but it, it's you're right and i'm delighted to talk about the next project and my book on damascus all publicity is good publicity <laughs> and even though this book is still in the process of being written. I have one chapter done at this point. Well, congratulations. Um, 
Thank you. Never too soon to start promoting a book. But in general terms, there is a political agenda behind the books that I've written, certainly the last two books. With the Arabs, it is in some sense a response to the whole post 9-11 Western relationship to the Arab and Islamic worlds. There was a growing sense that the trauma of 9-11 and then aftershocks with the attacks in London, in Spain, in Paris, had put Western society on a war footing where Islam was defined as the enemy and that put states in the Middle East in particular in the crosshairs. It seemed to me that by the reactions that America and its allies had taken in response to the 9-11 attacks and its aftermath, that there was something of a self-fulfilling prophecy going on, that America and Europe, having identified the Arab world as a source of the greatest threat to its security, its safety, its way of life, was now taking actions with, let us say, the toppling of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan in 2001, and then the toppling of the Ba'athist regime in Iraq in 2003, pressures being put on other countries in the region that were defined as part of an axis of evil like Iran, or pseudo-axis of evil like Syria, or indeed countries like Sudan, uh, which had come under a minor blitz by the Clinton administration after earlier Al-Qaeda attacks preceding 9-11. You know, you could identify countries right through the Middle East and North Africa that had been put under particular pressure by the politics of the war on terror. And then their responses were, of course, flaming fears in Europe and America because what was going on in the Middle East was a growing awareness that the greatest threat to their way of life, their values, their safety, was America and its European allies. You can't sit on the sidelines of that as a lifelong scholar of the Middle East and someone who has the privilege of working in a wonderful university like ours, like Oxford, with the resources, with the community. We, we live and breathe the Middle East. That's fine, but I can't keep it in the ivory tower. And there was a need for us to engage with the politics of our time, which was taking the region that we love and are committed to studying through this sympathetic engagement that is particular to our community in Oxford. You had to engage in public discourse and try and turn around this vicious circle of this self-fulfilling prophecy of the West deeming the Arab world as the threat, and then in its responses, proving itself the threat to the Arab world. And I thought one way to do that would be to stop writing uniquely for academic audiences, which I had done until this point, and write a book for the general audience, distilling my knowledge and interest of the region into a history which is approachable. My, my first goal in writing the Arabs was to write it in a way that would be interesting to anyone who didn't have training in our field, but read the newspaper, was at least interested enough to know what the headline issues were, and that they could go to a book that would provide them with a historical background to where we are today. But to favor, to privilege Arab voices in writing that history. And that's why and it's called it's, The Arabs and not, you know, a very bland title like A History or The History of the Middle East. Well, truth be told, I never knew what to call that book. And <laughs> all of my titles ultimately come from the publicity department of my publishers. Publishers have tremendous say over big details like that. Like, what is this going to be called? 
they think about what from their experience will sell a book. Uh, I was primarily concerned with people reading the book. Mm -hmm. Publishers, they just want to be sure people buy it, make sure it's on Christmas lists, that sort of thing. Did the world really need another book called The Arabs, written by a Western author? Anyway, the publishers decided they should, and mine was going to be different. And my argument was, you don't approach the French Revolution by reading what American consuls were saying about it. You go to the French sources. You know, If you want to write a history of Russia in the 20th century, you're going to privilege Russian sources. So why would we write a history of the Middle East that would be primarily based on the American archives or the British archives? And there is such a wealth of material that allowed us to see the modern history of the Arab world through the eyes of the Arab peoples who lived it. And in so doing, to people that history with women and men who were better narrators of their times than, than any observer. And that approach, I think, worked really well. I think by having five-century survey that was just peopled with these intriguing characters, you know, a barber in 18th century Damascus, a woman hijacker from the Palestinian uh, revolution uh, in the skies over Haifa. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are the kinds of characters that capture the imagination of readers and will make them turn the pages to come to grips with history. And maybe if they could just see what the modern era was like as experienced by the Arabs, they would realize that so many of the things that the West had done and was doing was achieving the opposite of the goals intended. The war on terror, a particular case in point. And so I was hoping by putting such a book in the hands of Western readers, we could just open them up to what the modern ages looked like to be an Arab. And in so doing, maybe enlighten the debate, uh, counterbalance books by people who clearly were hostile to the Arab world. And I think of Bernard Lewis and his acolytes as being absolutely brilliant scholars, but their point of departure has always been hostile to the region. So it was important for people whose point of departure was sympathetic to the region to fight back in that battle of the airport bookshop. To put yeah, a, that, that is where I've seen the book as well. Like, you know, for me, a book is famous if my mom has it on a shelf. And in that case, it, you know, she has both your books on her shelf. So I guess you, you have reached a, a broader audience. But so would you then say that your target to a certain extent was Westerners in order to give them a better perspective on what the region is on which they hear about, about so much, but about which they know so little. And therefore, one of the questions I ask is the Western idea that they could sort of save the Middle East. And I guess like the invasion in Iraq was an example of that way. You know, we, we're going to help the Middle East. And now again, with Vision 2030 and Saudi Arabia, like Western consultants are telling certain countries how to liberalize and diversify the economies. And the IMF is telling Egypt what to do with its currency, which caused it to lose half its value in about 48 hours. So... <laughs> You know, it, 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 it does seem that the West often thinks we know what's right. But when I spoke to a, a Middle Eastern politician earlier, he was quite annoyed at this perspective. He was saying that Westerners always try to impose their solutions onto us without understanding the context in which onto which those solutions are pushed. You know, in America, you would say people from inside the Beltway have too much of a savior complex towards the Middle East and probably the non-Western world as a whole? Well, I, I think that that is a consequence of power politics. 
again. The modern Middle East as we know it is a product of European state building in a colonial context. Mm-hmm. And so there was a sense for a lot of the 20th century that the British and French knew the Middle East better than the Middle East knew itself, that the more you left Arab peoples to run their affairs, the more they screwed it up. And then European experts could come in and help sort the problem. And this was taking place at all kinds of levels. When it came to town planning, you know, the 1950s, British town planners were putting roundabouts in Middle Eastern cities all over the place. And by the 1970s, as the growth of car traffic meant these roundabouts became the bottlenecks that strangled Middle Eastern cities, then new town planners were being brought in from the American experience of broad highways and overpasses and tunnels and whatnot to you know, come up with the right solution. And no surprise because the power politics of the second half of the 20th century was very shaped by the Cold War, by the Soviet vision of state-led economic development and strong single-party states, and the American vision of free market economies and pluralist political systems. And I think that by the time you reach the 21st century, the collapse of the Soviet Union having driven Russia a little bit into the power politics hinterland, it would, it would reemerge. But you know, by the beginning of the 21st century, a unipolar world dominated by America, which was closely partnered by its allies in Europe, particularly Britain, France, Germany, mm-hmm. the kind of heavyweights of the European economy, um, you know, a kind of G7 view of the world throw Canada in there for good measure. And you're dealing with the countries that felt like their experience, their economies had given them a privileged position to help the rest of the world sort out its problems. But you know, here we are in 2021. And I look at the way in which self-doubt has crept into the European project through Brexit Mm -hmm. and through the rise of the extreme right challenging the kind of liberal democratic institutions that had defined the post-war order in Europe as one of balanced, responsible politics, and the way in which populism captured the United States and a populist president took America, without exaggeration, to the brink of dictatorship and put its constitutional order, which had been tested in the past, but had really gone a quarter of a millennium without ever facing the strains that Trump was to put it under. These shocks have left America and Europe feeling a little less confident. And suddenly they look vulnerable to, let us say, the cyber assertion of a Russia. I don't think America and the West is at all confident that it has what it takes to compete with China economically or in technology terms. The growth that China has experienced while Europe and America's economies have been stalling, the way in which they are able to extend their economic power across the world without being drawn into the military and political problems of the world. I mean, all of this has made China look like a far more attractive partner to countries in the Middle East and North Africa, as in Latin America or Africa or South Asia. And suddenly, I think the idea that America, the West, has the answers to the problems of the Middle East is being put under more scrutiny, under more questions than ever before. Do you think and that's maybe, a, a good thing, considering relatively poor track record the West has in the Middle East, but 
you know, my my worry is that people within our field often go like, oh, thank God America isn't making the decisions anymore. But I feel the comparison is often with their idealistic alternative, which would be like this benevolent superpower. But the true alternative is China, which doesn't have at all a good track record of human rights or political freedoms or something. So, you know, it is a counterfactual, but I do often worry that we are only celebrating the departure of American hegemony because it's the departure of American hegemony without really considering the fact that its replacement might be a lot more uncomfortable. Well, the Trump years have been very interesting in that regard, because I think before 2016, the attitude of replacing America, the sort of Obama years, Mm -hmm. where America was a little bit on the retreat from its international engagements trying to focus on American needs after the Great Recession, but with a a likable, respectable American president who still upheld critical values of human rights and free speech. And that kind of America, I think the world was comfortable with. Retreat a little bit, leave the rest of the world more breathing room, don't try and be the world's policeman, but still uphold certain values that we would like to see more generalized around the world. But then Trump comes along, you get really unpredictable politics from the American leader who seems to be putting great strain on longstanding alliances between liberal democracies that have always been America's closest allies, Canada, the European Union partners, and showing great sympathy with strongmen, whether it's the regime in North Korea or the AKP president in Turkey. Or his favorite dictator, Sisi in Egypt. (laughs) No, that you would celebrate uh, an Egyptian president who had used more repressive methods than the autocrat that the Egyptian people united to overthrow in 2011. And so at that point, I think the world was looking for an America that was still engaged enough to uphold certain key values that are, well, prized by liberal, not just Europeans, liberals anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, liberal Turks looking for some sign that the world will stand with them against a growing autocracy of Erdogan and the AKP to preserve, you know, academic freedoms like we're seeing going on today in the demonstrations in Bosphorus University in Istanbul against the clampdown on academic freedoms. You know, you want to know that there are values that are being upheld that will preserve universities as sites of free discussion or in Hong Kong, where I think. A, a special political regime having been established in the handover from British to Chinese rule over Hong Kong. You want to know that there will continue to be a defense for people's freedom of speech, uh, association, to preserve their democratic political processes or whatnot. And so for that, having an American administration or an American uh, government that will continue to uphold those norms, I think, I think the world is is still looking for that that much of uh, American role in world affairs. They just don't want to be under a unipolar world mm. where America can act with impunity, not be held accountable by the United Nations. The kind of agenda that, let's say, the neocons pursued in the George W. Bush administration was the kind of overbearing Americanism that the world recoiled from. But, you know, the Middle East is looking for other partners. And here, I think... There is a lot of interest in the, the, the power of China. And I think it's great for countries in the region who don't want to be held to human rights scrutiny, 
to have a country they can go to that's only in it for the economics. It's only in it for the business. The Chinese will do business with you, with you without ever asking about your record for capital punishment or gender rights or gay rights. Now, is that a good thing for the region? You know, that's open to debate. Uh, I, I personally would like to see the space for such debates to broaden and open in the region along the lines of what the people of the region themselves are pushing for. But, you know, to have a power that can come in and help uh, economically without bringing a lot of political baggage with it is certainly attractive to the governments in the region. And I think China will grow ever more influential just by pursuing that. Now, the question is, can China be involved economically without getting drawn into the politics of the region? Can you have a stake and then not find yourself trying to defend it one way or the other? I I wonder. I wonder. So let's I, see what happens to China. You know, just to answer the question, which you didn't specifically ask me, but I will do it anyway. I, I do think it is possible for China to do so, because I do think a lot of these countries, especially politically lead to some extent, just want to be let alone with a stable economy. If China will allow them to do that, I think there is a stake in it. And I do also think that their conflicts in the region have to some extent been whipped up to make up for a lack of stable domestic economy. So if China can supply a stable economy, I think it can take some of the heat out of the regional politics, but that is pure speculation, at, you know, at its most extreme. Yeah, no, I, I'm thinking of, I mean, if you look at the Russian intervention in Syria, mm-hmm. it was driven by Russia's interests in that country, which is a naval base and a signal intelligence base, as well as a preeminence, diplomatically speaking, that goes back to the you know, Soviet times when the Soviet Union had really been an important patron to Syria. So its interests were put under pressure with the uprising in Syria since 2011. If Assad That's fell, Russia would have lost its standing because it would have been the awful old partner of the old regime. And it needed to preserve Assad in power. If China were to find itself in a country where it had significant investments that were linked to a regime that came under similar pressures, could China just say, we're only in it for the economics, we don't have a stake here? What happens if there's a hostage crisis and 250 Chinese executives and workers in a given city are seized by militants and the government is left with facing them being executed or paying a ransom or intervening militarily. Exactly the kind of situations that happen to political powers that enter our region. That's what I'm talking about. And I don't know, the deeper the engagement China has, that it will continue to be able to remain so aloof from the political process. That's that's a very good point. <laughs> as, as always. <laughs> I'm going to make a very clunky transition and ask another question because George Orwell wrote in his book 1984 that who controls the present controls the past and who controls the past controls the future. I might, again, be a bit biased because it's the region I study, but I often feel that the Middle East has like this much stronger desire to create like a national myth for a certain country, like to create you know, an idea what the country is based on its in, on its history. So, for example, in Egypt, you see a lot of references to pharaonic times. And even after the coup in 2013, Sisi's regime has changed the recent history of the country to benefit the military more. And do you think this quote is more relevant in, in the Middle East than it is in certain other countries because of the desire for autocrats to have a 
a national myth for them to latch on to and to motivate their citizenry to do certain things? It's a fantastic question, Piotr, because there is clearly a link between autocracy and trying to control history. My own kind of glib explanation for this when talking about the repression of historians in the Middle East, in the Arab world, is that governments have too much respect for history. They control access to the documentary record either by not opening archives. So you, you know, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs papers in Egypt had never really been made available to researchers in the archives. I'm dying for a new generation of scholarship mm-hmm. on 20th century Egyptian history based on Egyptian documents from Egyptian archives to counterbalance what we have, which is so overwhelmingly based on Western sources or published accounts by Egyptians. But the art, you know, the documentation is there. Why isn't it released? It's not released because today a government in Egypt worries that if the Egyptian people knew what their politicians or their decision makers said or did 50 years ago, it would destabilize government today. And so they they repress it. They they block our access to the historical record out of what I feel is an overdeveloped respect for history. Well, and you, them, you feel it. You, you say autocracies and the Arab world, and I mentioned autocracy as well, but in Israel as well, like the access to archives has been severely limited under the last years of the Netanyahu government. I do think there's a similar reason for that there as well, that there is a worry about like a, a new generation of new historians like Avi Schleim and his compatriots to challenge the uh, accepted norms of, of the, the foundational politics of the country? I, I confess I'm not aware that the Israeli archives have begun to restrict access to documents. So while I, I have no doubt that particularly this government, which has not really been sympathetic to intellectual activity and <laughs> is, is a very, well, no, I mean, the, it, it encourages the whole STEM side of intellectual activity. It would mm-hmm. like universities that were engaging in the kind of research and development that creates jobs and keeps Israel at the cutting edge of science and technology. But the experience of the 1980s, where Israeli archives gave researchers access in a fairly unfiltered way to the full historic record, and that engendering a critical reckoning with the past that you know we all found so exciting. You know, this was Israeli scholars drawing on Israeli archives to write an, an, a non-ideological history of their country. You know, it was just informed by, if there is an ideology, it's a kind of liberal ideology, that if a country engages in massacres or human rights abuses or duplicitous politics, that this should be exposed so that you can hold government to account. You know, so that kind of liberal politics certainly informed a lot of the new historians. Not all, I mean, Benny Morris really makes quite clear he, he likes to expose the historical truth, but it, it never shakes his support for the Zionist project and the right of the Jewish state. And that that right really should extend to the whole territory of Mandate Palestine without the kind of inconveniences of the Gaza Strip and West Bank. You know, they, they don't all share a kind of political ideology or agenda, these new historians, as they used to be called. But they were all a, a burr. Uh, in, in the side, a thorn in the side of an Israeli government 
for the kind of critical engagement with the past. And that began to make its way into the history books right through the Barak years. It's, it's really going to be under Barak's successor, Sharon, uh, Sharon under, under Arik Sharon, that you'll have a reversal of the new historians influencing the high school history curriculum in Israel and a return to a far more loyalist, nationalist telling of the past. And, and I think Israel has continued to turn out outstanding, engaged historians who draw on Israeli archives to write critical history. But I think they continue to face a lot of blowback by conservatives in their country who feel that that's disloyal and are you know, still wedded to a very nationalist uh, telling, in that sense, closer to what we see going on in the Arab world. But before we leave this question, you know, the Orwellian view of history, it is worth saying that one of the first things Biden did was to dissolve the 1776 commission that Trump had installed to try and write a more nationalist and loyalist history of the United States to erase and whitewash all the inconvenient and unpleasant aspects of a president who was far too sympathetic with white supremacist views and whatnot. So even in the United States, with our total academic freedoms, and you will have autocracy trying to seize the historical discourse to come up with a narrative that's more comfortable reading for them. Those abuses are not particular to the Middle East. It is a reflection of uh, the incomplete freedoms in society when you do not have open and critical engagement with the past. And there, Orwell knew what he was talking about better than any of us. That was precisely what he wrote about. Yeah, no, because it's easy, but I don't know if you've seen the newest pictures of Dahri Square, where they're rebuilding the whole thing. They've taken away all the graffiti, although they did that quite a while ago. But now, like, everything is tarmacked over. Like, the whole rotunda has completely changed. And it's, you know, it's a bit sad to see it that way. But it's basically so that they can reclaim that public space and, to a certain extent, hide the history of what, what happened there. And they put an obelisk, a sharp-pointed object, yeah, yeah. in the center of the new Tahrir, as if a reminder to those who might want to stand up again against the government of Egypt, that they could find themselves on the sharp end of a stick for trying. Yeah, the next three questions are all book-related. So the, 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 your favorite book, the book on the Middle East you consider the most important, and the book on the Middle East you think everyone should read. And that might sound as if I'm asking for the three of the same things. But to give an example, my favorite book on the Middle East is Into the Hands of Soldiers by David Kirkpatrick, because how well it describes Egyptian society and how unpredictable an authoritarian rule can be. And the one I think everyone should read is called Hello Everybody by Yoris Lendek because it's, it's a journalist perspective on the nuances of being a journalist in a country which, or in a society which is fundamentally different from that in the West. Now, for the most important one, I didn't know which one I choose, but I did have like a preliminary question within a question for you. And is, is one of your books on this list written by Albert Hurani? Oh, you got me. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, was, let's let's start prepped. with uh, let's start with that one. I was prepped by you sending me your questions. Yes. And I had to sit down and have a real think. But it just was so obvious to me 
that I, I you know, look, I, I rather than answer, you know, my favorite book, the book that's most important and the book that everyone should read. I'm, I'm just going to come up with three books that for different reasons, you know, or the authors uh, of, of three books that I think everyone in our field should read. So Albert Ronnie's going to head my list. I'm, I'm I, not surprised. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't be. You know, when I began my studies in the Middle East, I, I, I did my first degree in economics, yeah. but being at Columbia at American University, you have the freedom to take a lot of electives. And so having grown up in Beirut and in Cairo, when I got to New York uh, to study at university, the Middle East was still running through my veins. And so I did a little Arabic along the side of doing my economics degree. And I took a two-term sequence with uh, J.C. Hurwitz, who was the political scientist at Columbia on the Middle East. And I knew that I was very likely to want to work in the Middle East and decided to apply to the master's program at Harvard in Middle Eastern Studies, very similar to our MPhil. Mm -hmm. And when I got to Harvard, one of the first books that I read was Arabic Thought in the Liberal Age. That book was so influential on me personally, on the scholars surrounding me at Harvard, because... You know, it was written a generation before I started my graduate studies, but it so captured the intellectual history of the region from the great thinkers to emerge from the Middle East in the 19th and 20th century. It was a miraculous sort of book for one person to achieve. We know all the names that he cites in the book, that he profiles in the book today. They are still the people that are our go-to thinkers if you want to talk about Islamic modernism or the Nahda or the emergence of nationalist thought. But there wasn't, if you like, a roadmap there of who were the 30 most influential political thinkers in the Arab world. And there weren't translations of their books that made it quick and easy for you to come to grips with the thinkings of a Constantine Zurich or of Tahtawi. He had to just sit down in the way that was particular to the Oxford of the 1950s and 60s, with a lot of books that the library had just acquired from publishers in the Middle East that he would have in his study, and that he, when he would be interrupted by doing a tutorial, he'd put a bookmarker on the page he'd reached in the Peta Dean's surest path or whatever the latest one he was reading was, and then after having had an enlightening discussion over an essay written by a brilliant undergraduate, maybe after a cup of tea, and he'd go and find the book was still there and open and keep reading it. He read these books covers to cover. He researched into the lives of the individuals. He knew the historical context that they were operating in, what the constraints were, what the opportunities were. He knew what the influences behind them might have been. But this was not, if you like, the way Voltaire or Diderot or Bentham was absorbed into the Middle East and shaped the Middle East. It was not the way the Enlightenment or the Industrial Revolution changed the Middle East. It's the way the thinkers from the Middle East changed the Middle East. Yes, they were engaging with Europe or European ideas, but they were translators of those ideas into the, the language and the consciousness of the Arab peoples and, and the Ottoman world. And Hurani captured that in a way which set a research agenda for all of us down to the present. We still work with the terms that he framed Middle Eastern thought in. And written in this beautiful and engaging manner, this was somebody who approached the study of the Middle East from a profound 
love and appreciation of the region and its people. You know, that sympathetic engagement, I think that more than anything is what he shaped in an intellectual community in Oxford's Middle East Center, which he really founded, which he really established. And I, I think it's been our hallmark to the present. I mean, you may not all read all of, I've read every book Harani wrote. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've collected them, they're, they're treasures. Um, it was one of my most exciting moments as a master's student. I just finished my master's and one of my most influential teachers and later my doctoral supervisor was Philip Khoury, a great student of Albert Harani's, you know, so in line with Albert's thinking. They were like father and son intellectually introduced me to the great Oxford professor. And, and truly, I, I couldn't have been more nervous than Moses going to meet his maker when I got to the Harvard Faculty Club and was introduced by Philip Hurry to Albert Hurani. But now you know and how us students feel when we come to Oxford and meet people like you. <laughs> not the same, Piotr. This was, this was truly a titan. This was Albert Harani, you know, sure. and um, and we we engaged in uh, correspondence after that. Albert was very influential in giving me my first uh, research topic as a doctoral student. One in the end, I did not pursue, but in our meeting at the faculty club, said if you're thinking about a doctorate, there's really need for good scholarship on Algeria. Well, that was it. <laughs> I, I was Moses. I'd gone to the mountain, and the burning bush told me work on Algeria. <laughs> everything I did after that was preparing me to write a doctorate on Algeria. It wasn't until I realized back to the control of archives that working on post-revolutionary Algeria from Algerian sources was not going to be possible. That simply the material was not being put in public domain, either by the French or by the Algerians. Mm -hmm. At which point, you know, I, I pulled the parachute zip uh, cord and and wound up writing on Ottoman Transjordan instead. It wasn't a subject Albert thought was the most exciting, but he could see where it was a reasonable alternative given the, the situation. And when I was offered the job to come to Oxford in 1991, I immediately wrote to him. It was his job. And I also, in being offered the job, recognized I was stepping on some personal sensitivities of some of his former students who didn't get the post and just wanted to make sure that I wasn't ruffling feathers by having taken this job and coming. And I met with Albert in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I had just gone up to meet with my supervisors with the final draft chapters of my doctorate. And he was there because his more recent book, A History of the Arab Peoples, was burning its way to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And he was over for a meeting with the Harvard University Press who had published the book. They, who had never published a bestseller, never, were celebrating Albert Harani. And we met again in the faculty club and we talked about my coming to take the job. And, um, and then when I came to Oxford, we'd meet every week. You know, I had two years with Albert before he passed away. And for me, you know, I feel so mentored by him. I think he so shaped my view of what we as scholars, as responsible scholars of the region, should aspire to do. And I think he shaped the culture of the Middle East Center in a way that certainly, you know, we're like the second generation. If you take Walter Armbrust and Michael Willis and mm -hmm. Avi Schleim and me, we're, we're people who came in filling the positions that have been created by Albert and his first team, Philip Robbins. You know, we're the second generation. But 
you know, the one thing I really want to see us preserve and pass on as scholars of this center that Albert created is, as he demonstrated with Arabic thought in the liberal age, it is through a sympathetic engagement with the region. You've got to study it out of curiosity and love of the region, not an uncritical curiosity and love, but you've got to love the region. And then by studying it through the languages, you, you've got to be able to sit at your desk with that text in Arabic or Turkish or Persian or Hebrew and know the region from its own thinkers, its own writers, its own language. We learn so much from you guys. It from is the by the, yes, it's the engagement we have with those of you who come to work with us and the questions you bring and the experiences you have. Because while I'm stuck in Oxford, you know, you're all, uh, pandemic aside, heading off to the region for your summer abroad or for the year of research, and you come back with new encounters and new experiences of where the region is today. Not when I was a graduate student visiting it in the 1980s, or as I go today, parachuting in for a four-day visit where I'm treated, you know, very, very nicely, but I'm not taking buses and services and just mixing and mingling with people the way I did when I was a poor and curious graduate student. Five-star hotels are not the best way to see the throbbing heart of the society we love and study. You know, That's very so true. the interaction we have with you, our students, our, our graduate students in particular, who have a mature and developed and engaged relationship with the region is precisely the kind of exchange that means we're really your supervisors. And in what you bring back to us in knowledge and experience, you're our teachers. And that respect and exchange is so particular to the culture of our Middle East center. And that comes straight out of Albert Hurani. So for me, yeah, I mean, the essential reading is Arabic thought in the liberal age, but virtually everything Albert wrote, with the exception of two books that he personally wished to disown, his first two on minorities in the Middle East and Syria and Lebanon, he always felt were far too quick and not thought through. And he always mm -hmm. wished not to talk about them, but they're actually quite good books for their time as well. Maybe so not you, enduring you legends. Huron in all of the three categories, like, you know, he, he is literally for you like a foundation of, of Middle Eastern. He really is. He really is, I think, uh, just essential reading for anybody who wishes to engage with our reach. But I'm going to give you two others very quickly. Sure. Who I think really make for mind-opening reading. And one, you know, because travel literature is such an important part of what fascinates us with the region. And we have so many amazing people who came through the region and wrote about it as travelers. But one less known perhaps to people today, but certainly influential over the centuries, would be John Lewis Burkhardt. He wrote a number of books drawing from his experiences of uh, traveling through the region in the 1820s. It was Burkhardt who was the first European to find Petra after centuries of people speculating on the existence of such a hidden city carved into the stone. He had gone to Cairo to learn Arabic first and then traveled through Syria and then ultimately went down to observe the pilgrimage in Mecca. And so his travel in Syria would be one of my favorite books, certainly as a travel book. Here again, because he stands out, he learned Arabic before he traveled. So a real Huranian scholar, this guy. Huranian before Hurani. He travels from Aleppo right through all of Syria, village by village, city by city. He spent a lot of time sitting and talking to people and reflected on their knowledge of their society. And these books, I think, are some of the best informed, most eye-opening and engaging. He was Swiss. 
so these are English translations of what writing must have been in, in German. Um, but yes, I would I would definitely put Burkhardt on the list uh, for those looking for travelers with a difference. And then the last I would add would certainly be Robert Fisk, Pity the Nation. And as a kid, I lived five years in Beirut from the early 1970s to the outbreak of the Civil War. We, we lived first through the first six months of the Civil War before recognizing it wasn't getting better. It wasn't safe to stay. And then we moved to Cairo. We left uh, Beirut in October of 75. But I'd always been fascinated with the Lebanese Civil War, the political forces that led to it, the course of the war, the kaleidoscope of alliances ever shifting. And I think of all the books I've read about the Lebanese Civil War, Pity the Nation by Robert Fisk still stands as by far the best informed, the best researched, the most compassionate. It's it's a monument. So, you know, that book, then he came out with The Great War for Western Civilization. The Great War for Civilization, no Western. It was what the medal issued to soldiers in the First World War read on the back. And his father had been a veteran of the First World War. This was the war to end all wars, the uh, the Great War for Civilization. And it really was about the rest of Fisk's journalism career, covering the Iran-Iraq War and all the other conflicts across the region. And when it came out, I was furious with him. What self-indulgence has anybody write a book? The book is like 1,200 pages long. We're not talking about the Bible here. You know, We're not talking about the Oxford English Dictionary. Who writes a book? 1,200 pages in length. It's a vanity project. No, it's another monument. What a wonderfully engaging and insightful book. Truly, Robert Fisk, who we just lost, actually, in the past couple of months, he passed away during this recent pandemic, um, had a way of telling the story. Now, fellow journalists always derided him as fisking it, which was to say, to nuance the story, to make it more saleable or more readable. Or I think it was... Again, the writings of someone who had a pathological desire to be right where it was happening, regardless of how horrible, and then to write about it always on the side of the people who were suffering the most and ruthless in criticism of the governments inflicting that suffering on the people. Um, Met him a couple times. Uh, One of the few speakers I've invited to the Middle East Center that I actually wound up swearing at and told him to to go at himself at one point in in a day in which he had spent the whole day needling me until I finally cracked. Did did he uh, ever come back after that? Always, always. He he was doing it on purpose. (laughs) He he thought I was too nice. And he was trying to find where where the, the place under the fingernail was sensitive. That was Robert Fisk, you know? And may I then ask, what was the place which became sensitive, if if you're willing to share that? Absolutely. We were, we were talking about our families and backgrounds. Right. And my ticket to the Middle East had been my father, who worked for an aerospace company called Northrop that oh, sold yeah. fighter planes to Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iran, Turkey, lots of countries. And so by being part of the military-industrial complex, at some point, he made an assumption about my dad, who passed away in 1990, and I just adored my dad. Mm-hmm. And 
I'm sorry, but you don't do that to my dad. <laughs> At which point it was, fuck you, Robert Fisk. <laughs> and he was just so delighted to get to the point <laughs> that he could find it. And we had the whole day together. I went to London to pick him up from his hotel to bring him to Oxford to give the Antonius lecture that day. Mm-hmm. He had his dead girlfriend with us. You know, it was such an intense day. And, be, you know, and, and after he had brought me to the breaking point, we continued our civil conversation. And uh, he inscribed my copy of The Great War for Civilization with something like to Eugene Rogan, uh, hoping I am still, you know, one of your favorite writers, yours, Robert Fish. It's something like that. And of course he is. So those three authors uh, and their books would be what I would recommend. Can I then ask Robert one Ronnie. quick uh, yeah. concluding question? If you could have any person from Middle Eastern history, either like currently alive or dead, to sit down and have a dinner with, who would it be? Oh, gosh. Now that's a toughie. I could sit down with one guy from the Middle East yeah. and have dinner. I think it would have to be the Prophet Muhammad. Oh, yeah, I thought you were going to say that. Really? Yeah. He's, he's a little early for my period. I mean, I'm not sort of a rise of Islam sort of guy. But yeah, it would be quite amazing. And then the question is, if you actually were able to meet the Prophet Muhammad, would you have become a Muslim? I don't know. I think if if I had to choose someone, you know, I'm I'm very much a modern political history guy, so I'd say probably Nasser or uh, Maida Dagan from from the Israeli Defense Establishment would be quite interesting as well. Nasser would be fantastic. He'd yeah. be such good company. You know, he he had such a bonhomie about him. When you see the films of him, his way of interacting with people, his warmth, his humor. You know that if you sat around with a lot of brandy after dinner, you could go on till four in the morning and you just never run tired of the stories. Thank you for listening to this episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Join us next time when we discuss climate change in the Middle East. Almanac is a student-run initiative at the Middle East Centre in the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed in the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University or of the Middle East Centre. It is edited and hosted by myself, Piotr Schokus, with the invaluable aid of Lily Sullivan, Felix Walker, Michael Mimari, Hazar Madah, Max Randall, Frederica Brockhoven, Rose Johnson, Helena Murphy, 